Hello, people out in Podland. It's Amber here today. Uh, finally out again with my microphone in Paris, recording a new episode for you. And I'm sorry it's taken so long. I've had lots of things going on. I did a show with my friend Sarah, and uh, it was my son's holidays from school, so I've been been so busy. And this episode is going to be about something which, when I started, felt very relevant. I was talking about uh, the floods that were happening in Paris back in 1910 and it's because I started in January and Paris was a mess. It was a hot mess. Uh, The Seine was flooding. It was really high. It was snowing in Paris. The baboons had escaped from the zoo. It was like, what's going on? So I thought this would make a great podcast. Anyway, it feels a little less relevant because today is absolutely gorgeous. It's so sunny and Zuev over here at the Pont Alma his feet are very much dry. Anyway, listen up. I hope you enjoyed the episode uh, and I'll speak to you at the end. Hello and welcome back to Panam, a podcast that likes to poke its nose into the obscure stories from Paris's past. Paris has avoided destruction time and time again in her long history. Saint Genevieve got down on her knees and, as if by miracle, Attila and his horde avoided Paris. Vikings came and went. Siege, disease and urban planners all wreaked havoc on Paris. Both World War I and II threatened Paris with ruin. So it was surprising for me to learn that the Seine, the river that runs through Paris, fundamental to the city's identity, providing Parisians not only with the reference of right and left bank, but art, military protection, trade, food, water, industry and tourism, very nearly caused its downfall. I've known about the Great Flood of 1910 for a while, You can still see places where it's marked on the walls as to how high the waters rose. And if you Google search the flood, you can see rather charming photos of Parisians dressed in bowler hats and women with long dresses precariously walking through the flooded streets on makeshift bridges or being rowed through the city. How quaint, I thought it all looked from a distance. How funny to see such well-dressed people balancing on chairs as they made their way through flooded parks. This being 1910, there's even footage you can watch on YouTube of people rowing boats down boulevards or gazing down from bridges at the water rushing by or down into the flooded metro entrances and struggling to get through the city with horse-drawn carriage. Familiar sights like the Eiffel Tower or the Orsay are completely transformed, surrounded or filled with water. I started thinking about this subject because this year's heavy rain meant that the Seine nearly flooded again and everyone was quite concerned. So so I thought I would investigate further to see what happened to Paris and the Parisians and the toll the flood of 1910 took on Paris. Most of my research comes from this great book called Paris Underwater by Geoffrey H. Jackson and if you're interested in this subject I would highly recommend it. Now come back with me as we travel back to January 1910 and a very wet winter. All cities have lots of strange traditions and lore. In Paris, the River Seine is measured by how high it comes up on the body of the statues under the Pont d'Alma, especially that of Zouave. Zouave himself represents a soldier from the Crimean War. He looks very dapper in his uniform, a cape flowing behind him and a gun at his side, as he looks contemplatively out 
eastward, as if he's ready to leap into action should Paris need him. The water is usually well below his feet, but every winter it rises, sometimes making it to his toes. This year, it reached to around his knees, meaning that the walkways along the Seine were closed and the boats which normally take tourists down the river were not in operation, partly as they were inaccessible, but also as they would no longer fit under the bridges. However, in 1910, Zouave had his shoulders in the water and Parisians all got their feet wet. The city of Paris sits in a kind of basin, rising up on the right bank where you can see the Mont Saint-Geneviève with the Pantheon on top, and on the other side the hills of Montmartre and Belleville. The Marais, which is now a neighbourhood full of trendy boutiques, actually means swamp, and that's what it used to be. Paris used to be a much wetter place, and the Seine a lot bigger. When the Romans kicked the Parisi out of Paris in the first century, it's not surprising they chose to settle on the higher ground of the right bank. The very word the Roman used for Paris, Lutetia, likely comes from the Latin word lutum, meaning mud. The Seine River, although vital for life in Paris, has always been tricky and would often flood. But by the turn of the 20th century, people thought they had finally managed to tame it. How wrong they were. Now, as with most disasters, it was not one thing, but rather a catalogue of events which saw the terrible flood occur in 1910. January 1910 had been, like this year, cold and rainy. In fact, 1909 had seen a lot more rainfall than usual and groundwater levels were very high, as was the Seine. Zouave's toes were already wet by early January 1910. But unlike other years, the water was rising faster than usual and the sodden ground was not absorbing it. Parisian engineers were aware that there was a problem. A town upriver from Paris had been flooded and they were working to reinforce the banks. Edmund Maillet was a gifted engineer and he worked for the Hydrometric Service and was in charge of monitoring the Seine. But for personal reasons, on the 16th of January, just when he was most needed, he had to abandon his post, leaving a less experienced person in his place. This was especially bad timing, as the data system in place to let Paris know of rising water levels had been knocked out by, well, by rising water levels. Edmund, with his 11 years of experience, may have been able to predict the disaster that was coming and forewarn Paris of what was about to happen. Although, to be fair, this probably would have made little difference to the final outcome. On the 21st of January, at precisely 10.53pm, Parisians, as well as the engineers, saw the first worrying signs that all was not well. The city's clocks stopped. Paris had a rather ingenious compressed air system that ran, amongst other things, the post service, elevators, provided ventilation and moved factory motors. It also ran the clocks. How it did this? I'm really not sure. But by the evening of the 21st of January, the factory that ran this had been flooded. In one night, the Seine had risen nearly 10 feet above its normal level. Zouave's knees were now wet. Paris is a city that is both above and underground. Most buildings have basements, and in 1900, just 10 years earlier, the metro opened its doors, enabling Parisians to whiz around the city with speed and ease. There are the catacombs, there's even an underground river, the Brieve, once above ground but covered due to pollution. There's an underground lake under the Opera Garnier, and most important, the sewers. Napoleon III came to power, and with his prefect Baron Haussmann, promised to make Paris cleaner and greener. 
of Houseman's many building projects, the much-needed sewers were less visible, but very important. You can still visit them today at the Sewer Museum, one of Paris's perhaps lesser-known museums. So key were they to modernising Paris that they even feature prominently in the great tome of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables when Jean Valjean saves Marius by carrying him through the sewers. But in 1850, there were fewer than 100 miles of sewers that ran below the 260 miles of streets of Paris. They were outdated and overrun. Diseases such as cholera and typhoid were a real threat. In 1832, for example, 18,000 perished in a cholera outbreak, and then another 16,000 died in the 1849 epidemic. Fresh water and the removal of waste was essential, and by the time Houseman had left office, he had quadrupled the number of miles of sewers. All of this was well and good in normal times. But now, this underground world was flooding, and on the 22nd of January, Parisians were horrified to find water bubbling up through the basements, sewers and metros. The Seine was not coming over the walls, but rather under them, and the rain kept coming. Now, Parisians are a resourceful lot, and they quickly found ways to get about the city, constructing improvised walkways which rose as high as six feet above the ground in places and led people to ladders which they could climb up into the first-storey windows. People that had boats ferried people around, out of the goodness of their hearts or maybe for a fee, and the lively bustle of the city continued despite the rain and rising water. By January 24th, it had reached Zouave's thigh. Despite their industriousness, it was not just the flooded areas that were suffering. The city's infrastructure was so interlinked that the whole of the capital was in trouble, so even areas not directly hit by floodwater were still affected. Paris might be known as the City of Light, but in 1910 the gaslights which lit the streets were illuminated each night by hand. As the waters rose, this task became impossible, and many of the flooded areas were plunged into darkness, leaving people feeling frightened and reminding them of the not-too-distant siege of 1870, when fuel had run low and Paris had also been left in the dark. Train tracks flooded, and transport in or out of the city became impossible. Telegraphs shut down, the posts stopped, the city was effectively being cut off from the rest of the world. People, information and goods were unable to get in or out of the city. Stores that kept dry goods in basements, as well as businesses like butchers and bakers and other merchants, often lost the whole of their stock. Flooding in farms that surrounded Paris destroyed crops that supplied Paris with fresh food, and there was a real fear of rationing and food shortages. Again, people were reminded of the horror of the 1870 siege and the food shortages that they had endured. Even worse for Parisians, Bercy, where a lot of wine merchants kept their stock, was flooded. The merchants were horrified to see barrels of wine being washed away, and quite a few Parisians risked life and limb in an attempt to fish them out of the fast-moving waters. The entire infrastructure of the city was being undermined by the floods. By January the 25th, Zouave was waist-deep in water, and the city faced a new problem. The rubbish collection and treatment plants had closed, and the refuse which normally would be burnt began piling up in filthy, rotting heaps. Officials finally ordered it to be thrown into the Seine, causing more misery and disruption to towns and villages downriver from Paris, who were even less equipped to deal with the flood. The Seine itself was also full of debris that was causing structural damages to bridges, and there was even concern that the walls of the Ile Saint-Louis might crumble and the houses be washed away. People had to be evacuated. Many lost possessions, livelihoods and precious irreplaceable items. And as businesses and factories flooded, 
people found themselves simultaneously homeless and out of work. A curfew was imposed, and the police patrolled Paris, hoping to keep any opportunistic thieves and looters at bay. They were instructed to shoot on sight any looters they caught. Although most people banded together in times of trouble, there was a real fear in Paris at the time of the ferocious gangs known as the Apaches. This incongruous name comes from the Native American Apache tribe, made famous by Gustave Aimard in his novels, depicting them as fearless, savage warriors. It was then the tabloid press which popularised this expression, looking for sensational headlines in an effort to sell newspapers to describe these gangs of outlaws. But the Apaches deserve their very own episode, so we'll talk about them later maybe. January was exceptionally cold and snow began to fall and things were looking very bleak indeed. Parisians huddled in makeshift emergency housing in hospitals and churches. Cold and miserable, people worried about their homes, about looters and about disease. France appealed for help and aid came from all over the world. Tsar Nicholas II sent 100,000 rubles, the Pope sent 30,000 francs and his prayers. La Scala in Milan donated all the proceeds from their performance of Sanson and Delilah to the victims. Groups from New Orleans and the US Chamber of Commerce gave generously. Within Paris there was an appeal for a more equal division of funds. Paris is divided into 20 arrondissements and those that were better off were encouraged to help the poorer neighbourhoods rather than each arrondissement supporting its own people. But the water continued to rise. By the 28th of January, the water was up to Zouave's neck, 20 feet above its normal level. Although closed to the Parisians, the water took full advantage of the metro, flooding the underground network and travelling along the tracks to emerge far from the Seine and flood areas and neighbourhoods which would usually have escaped unharmed. The Gare Saint-Lazare, Opera and the department stores all found themselves in trouble. Buildings and streets only recently finished in Haussmann's recreation of the city looked in real danger of collapse. Sinkholes opened up and cobbles that should have covered the street lifted off. At the Hôtel de Ville, the civil servants worked hard to empty the basement of important documents for fear of losing them. On the other side of the river at the Palais de Justice, prisoners were moved from their cells. And further up the river, inside the Louvre, they worried how they might protect the priceless works of art should the museum flood. Outside, men worked hard to reinforce the banks of the river, to stop them bursting and plug manholes in an attempt to stem the water from bubbling up through them. The army was called in to help. Food prices rose, bread was rationed and the snow melted, adding to the rising water. But it was not only people who suffered, but the animals too. The animals in the zoo of the Jardin de Plantes were not doing well at all. The crocodiles tried to escape, and rumour in Paris had it that they did, adding perhaps a certain frisson as the Parisians picked their way through the city. The bears were left stranded, a giraffe died when it refused to move onto a rescue platform and an elephant got rheumatism. The zookeepers tried their best to save as many as they could. To be fair, things had been worse for the animals during the siege of 1870, where they'd been eaten by the hungry Parisians. Finally, however, on the 29th of January, the weather cleared and the sun came out. Hope was restored. Slowly, the waters receded, leaving behind filth and debris. People's once treasured possessions littered the streets. It was time to start cleaning, but the very process was hazardous. Many were concerned that the weakened foundations of buildings would crumble once the pressure from the water, which had essentially been holding them up, was pumped out. 
Likewise, Engineer worried that the downward pull of the receding water would create a vacuum and carry off the streets with it. Thankfully, this didn't happen. But there was plenty of damage. Trees had fallen, cobblestones had been lifted off, houses were full of mud and rubbish and sewage. Rubbish was all over the streets, but thankfully, the water was finally going. The long cleaning and repairing process could begin. The emphasis was on cleaning and disinfecting. Any buildings that served food had to be cleaned thoroughly and any stocks damaged by water thrown away. There was a real fear of an outbreak of disease, but fortunately, despite many people's fears, the very volume of water meant that even though the sewers had flooded and the water was pretty foul, it was so diluted that the disease-causing bacteria was not spread. Although the government put a system in place to compensate families affected by the flood, it was needless to say complicated and difficult to implement. With around 20,000 buildings being wrecked and 200,000 people made homeless, and of the 20 arrondissements, 12 were flooded, with an estimated bill in today's money of around a billion euros in damages, it was a massive job. And of course, as always, the poor came off the worst. It must have been devastating for so many to lose so much, much of which must have been impossible to replace. The legacy of the flood is complicated, but actually very interesting. In 1910, Paris was reeling from a number of political dramas which had left their mark on the city and people, causing social and political divisions. The Franco-Prussian War, which ended in French defeat following a devastating siege of the city and the loss of Alsace-Lorraine. The Paris Commune, a radical socialist revolutionary government, ruled for a couple of months before being brutally brought down and replaced by the Third Republic. And the Dreyfus Affair, a complicated political scandal where Alfred Dreyfus was wrongly accused and framed as a traitor, perhaps due to the fact that he was Jewish, which led to Emile Zola's publication of J'accuse, where he publicly reproached the army of injustice. In Geoffrey Jackson's book, he discusses the legacy of the flood, and he puts forward the idea that the flood in some way brought Paris and Parisians together, creating a sort of dress rehearsal that would be needed for World War I, how to evacuate people, where they could be housed, how to get relief, medical supplies out in case of emergency. During the flood, the Red Cross played an important role, and this experience in coordinating emergency relief would be vital to them during World War I. It showed Parisians that despite fear and mistrust of the government following the failed war with Prussia and the terrible of Dreyfus affair, that they could count on the army in an emergency, which of course is pretty important during a war. So what are the flood today? You can still see the plaques where mark, which mark where the waters came to, especially in the Ile de la Cité. You can visit the Sewer Museum, and there's some rather fascinating interactive maps online showing what streets would be flooded if the waters rose again. You can, of course, see the footage on YouTube, which is really interesting. Of course, following the floods, the banks and quays were reinforced and the sewers improved, so floods became less likely. Although, as this year showed, there is always a risk. Parisians have not completely forgotten the power of the water. The Seine River runs centrally through Paris and is central to Parisians' identity. The very symbol of Paris is not, as many think, the Eiffel Tower, but rather a ship, with the motto in Latin beneath, which means she's tossed by the waves but does not sink. Another podcast done and dusted. I mean, I loved learning about this one. 
Uh, I'd definitely recommend that book I mentioned, Paris Underwater, if you want more details uh, about about the flood and about you know all the sort of intricacies, because obviously I couldn't cover that all on the podcast. Um, and check out those YouTube videos. I'll put some links maybe on the website and some pictures, obviously, as usual. But if you want to check out some pictures, it's easier maybe on Instagram. So follow me on Instagram. And of course, I love hearing from you guys. If you've got uh, questions about Paris or feedback or anything, then do let me know. Do let me know. And um, if you enjoy the podcast, then tell a friend because I'd love more people to hear the podcast. So tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts and that really makes my day when I get a lovely review from you all. Anyway, I hope you are doing well. I hope to see you very soon. I promise to try and get episodes out a bit more regularly from now on. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.